Go ahead and turn, please, in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. So with teenage boys in my house, the soundtrack of our lives has a lot of hip-hop playing on it. Now to be fair, they got a lot of Grateful Dead playing on the soundtrack too, so I get my my music in there as well. But Christian hip-hop right now is getting a lot of playtime, and not only that, but there's a lot of other artists that are being factored into the soundtrack of our lives. And for a while on repeat was this song by Aha Supreme, which is a great name for a hip-hop artist. I'm sorry, Aha Gazelle, who wrote a song, I'm Feeling Supreme. I'm Feeling Supreme. What's that even mean? It means it's disrespectful for you just to call me clean. It means I'm really about that action like a movie scene. Can't crop me out the picture. No, no, I need everything. I'm feeling supreme. Spitting bars. See, I can be cool. Talented guy, Aha Gazelle, super talented guy. Really, really talented artist. But he's making some really bold statements here. I'm feeling like I'm number one. Like, don't. Don't, disrespectful, don't be disrespectful to me and just call me like clean, like I'm a clean, I'm a clean, sanitized Christian rapper. Don't disrespect me. I'm feeling supreme. I'm like number one here. I'm superior. Everyone else is inferior. I'm major. Everyone else is minor. These are bold statements. And the trouble with statements of supremacy like this is that they're so temporary And they're so subjective. Someone at some point in history is going to rise up and he or she is going to feel supreme. Somebody is going to feel like they're number one. Somebody is going to come up in the ranks. It happens in music. It happens in sports. It happens in business. It happens all over the place in every profession that we have. Somebody else coming in the ranks feels supreme. And we think, you know what? We'll always have our greats. But this person... He or she has something that might just set them apart. They might really be the best. Is there anybody who can rise up and say, I'm feeling supreme and actually be supreme? Is there anybody that can rise up and say, I have comprehensive supremacy over all things, all time, everywhere? Is there anyone who can say and actually be supreme? Church, there is only one individual that can say that with utmost integrity. I'm feeling supreme, and I am supreme over everything. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is supreme. And that's what Paul writes in these verses. Read with me God's word, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, we acknowledge right now your supremacy over all things. Would you help us? Would you help us right now with our limited minds to understand what is limitless? Would you help us to comprehend what is incomprehensible? Would you help us right now to know you truly even though we cannot know you exhaustively because you are beyond anything we can fully comprehend. Spirit of God, speak to us. Teach us. We're, we're op- our ears are open now. Speak to us. For your great glory and honor, we pray. Amen. My aim, friends, this morning is very, very simple. In these 30 to 40 minutes, I want us to slow down and meditate on the supremacy of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Particularly, his supremacy in creation and his supremacy in the church, which is what we see here in these five verses. Jesus is supreme over all of creation, and he's particularly supreme in his church, over his people who name him as Lord and Savior. So first, his supremacy in creation. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Paul is likely referencing and riffing off of Genesis 1, where we learn that someone else was made in God's image. Who was created to reflect the image of God? Who is made in Genesis 1? Adam. Adam was the son of God who was born into the world, created by God to represent him, to image forth who God is. Adam was placed in something of a garden temple where the presence of Almighty God dwelt to lead the world as a worshiper, as a ruler, as a divinely appointed leader over all that God had made to image forth who God is, what he's like, how he acts. He was the image bearer of God. But we all know how that worked out. So when your sole job is to image forth the creator God, but you decide that you don't want to do that, that you want to move in a different direction, well, that's really bad for business. If your job is to be the image of God and you reject God, guess what? You're not doing your job. So from the very beginning, the world has always needed a better image bearer, a better representative, a better ruler, a better worship leader to guide and lead us in the ways of the creator God. For for Paul, there's only two categories of people in the world, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. In Adam, we fall from grace. In Adam, mankind We lose the privileges of being in a peaceful relationship with the one who's created us. 
In Adam, we actually forfeit the relationship with our Creator and come under not His grace, but His judgment. In Adam, we are inferior. Christ is far more superior to Adam because as Adam plunged the world into sin through his unrighteousness, Paul says, Jesus raises the world into righteousness because he perfectly images forth God in all things. He perfectly obeys the Father in all respects. He perfectly submits himself to the will of the the Lord to submit himself to a cross to die and be raised again to bring us all who are in Adam, to bring us all into Christ where he raises us up and restores our privileged place to be very sons and daughters of Almighty God. Jesus is totally supreme over Adam because where Adam has failed, Jesus has succeeded in spades. He's supreme over all. Which is why Paul says... Like a firstborn son, Jesus has all of the rules and the rights of authority to reign in his Father's kingdom. Look at what it says in verses 13 and 14. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is kingdom, rulership language. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, he's saying he's inherited as the firstborn son who has completely satisfied his father's will. He has inherited the rights to rule of God's kingdom. He's supreme. Now, unlike Adam, Jesus isn't just part of the creation. He's supreme for more than just his perfect obedience. He's not like Adam in that he's part of creation. The whole creation came into existence through Jesus. He's above creation because he's the creator of all things. Did you notice how many times all things was repeated in these short five verses? Jesus is not part of the creation. Jesus is the source and the authority over all of creation. He's the creative power and the creator sustainer of everything that exists. And he brought everything into existence simply by speaking his word. One of the most powerful depictions of this, of the supremacy of Christ, is in the Gospel of Mark in chapters 4 and 5, where Mark gives us rapid-fire short stories of Jesus as God. The first story contains Jesus asleep on a boat. It says that the great, a great storm rises on the Sea of Galilee and all of the disciples are in the boat freaking out. Then it says that there is, Jesus speaks, he says, peace be still and there's a great calm which leads to a great fear. So more consumed with fear are the disciples when Jesus calms the storm than they were afraid of the storm when it was happening. Because they think to themselves, who is this? Who is this that's in the boat with us? This one is not overcome by the storm. This one overcomes the storm by telling it to settle down. And it does. Who is this? There's no one like him. 
Next, right after this story, Mark tells us of the time that Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man. A man who was so out of control that he lived in the tombs. His bedroom was in the graveyard. No one can tolerate this man. No power that ever came against him was ever superior to him. Because every time they bound him with chains or shackles, he busted loose. He says to Jesus, we're a legion. A Roman legion was comprised of 6,000 or so armed, trained warriors. No power was superior to this man until he met Jesus. Jesus is so superior in that story that this legion of demons asks permission of Christ not to be destroyed, but to go into a herd of pigs, which is really weird, but it's all having to do with supremacy. Who's the one in charge here? They ask for permission to go not to be destroyed, but to go into a herd of pigs, which they do. So the demonic legion does not overpower Jesus. Jesus overpowers the demonic legion. There's no one like him. Then he's asked to heal a little girl. This is the very next story. Mark is doing this intentionally. A little girl is sick, Jesus. I need you to come and help her. On the way to healing this little girl, a woman who's been with a flow of blood, the Bible says, for 12 years. The Bible says she spent all of her money. She's seen all of the doctors. She's just given it all. She's completely broke. And no doctor that came against her illness was superior over it. They all were inferior. They couldn't help her. And what's more, in a Jewish culture and tradition, when a woman who was going through her period of menstruation touched somebody, they made, she made that person unclean. Except for Jesus. Her unclean, Jesus isn't infected by her uncleanness. He infects her with his cleanness. The Bible says immediately when she touched him, immediately the flow of blood stopped. Immediately because of the presence of Jesus, she's now restored and completely able to be in the presence of God. He doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. There's no one like this. Then the word comes, Jesus, don't bother, little girl. She died. Jesus goes anyways. He takes the little girl's mother and father into the room and he touches her hand again, unclean. He touches the girl's hand and says, little girl, arise. Death does not overcome Jesus. Jesus overcomes death. There's no one like him. All things in this created world must bend. They must give way to. They must submit to Christ's supreme authority because he created everything. It must bend. It must achieve anything. And everything must achieve his wise and loving and sovereign purposes for every single one of our lives. They must because he's supreme over everything. So I wonder this morning, what is it that looms largely in your life? We all come in here with things. What is it that looms largely? Maybe it was that thing that was even keeping you from coming this morning. What situation, what circumstance, 
What sin, what, what feels like the, the dominant reality of your life right now? You see, high thoughts of Jesus, like a high Christology, it's meant to function for us. It's not meant to be something that we just give mental assent to. Like these things are true, but they have no real relevance to my life. A high view of Jesus is meant to function for us. And so often life can feel like an airport. This is the image that comes to my mind. Airports, they're distracting, they're busy. Oftentimes they can be really stressful. Like you want to stress the most level-headed, reasonable person in the world, just put him or her in the airport. And when he or she is about 12 gates away, start getting on the megaphone and calling their name and say, listen, this plane's leaving with or without you in five minutes. Like all rationale goes out the window. They don't care what anybody thinks. They're like sprinting, sweating through the airport. You ever feel like that in life? Like really stressed out. This is overwhelming. See, one of the reasons why we gather every week, one of the reasons why Christian community is so important is because right here, right now, God has gathered his people together because he wants to remind us whatever it is that seems dominant in your life, that's just a feeling. That's not ultimately a reality because everything must bend to the authority and the supremacy of Christ in your life. He's used, that thing, that circumstance, whatever it is, he's using that. It must bend to him. And he's purposing to do you only good. He's purposing to use that thing in your life only to shape and to fashion you to be like him, which will lead to your ultimate joy. All things are submissive to him in your life. He has purposed to do us as his people only good. So something might feel like the dominant reality. Something like Aha Gazelle might be feeling supreme, but that's just a feeling. Because only Christ is supreme and he's supreme for you. That's how our Christology is meant to function. See, it's not that we come to church or missional community or Christian fellowship to escape our problems. That's not what we're doing here. Coming to church is like going to the airport and passing through the gate and getting on the plane. When you break through the clouds and the gloom and the darkness and the rain and the, and the fog, you always get to that point where you see no matter what the weather is on the ground, the sun is blazingly brightly shining above and you're above it all. That's what coming into church and Christian fellowship is meant to be. We're not escaping from our problems because guess what? That plane's got to land again. There's more clouds and more gloom and more darkness that it's going to come back into. But you enter into that with a new perspective. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Nothing in your life is anything but submissive to him. It's like coming off the field and getting that oxygen mask on. We're inhaling and exhaling the grace of God to each other. We're breathing in and breathing out the sovereign grace of God, not so that we can stay on the sidelines, so that with oxygen of grace in our lungs, we go back into the world and begin to live, not escaping our problems, but encountering them with a new perspective. That's how the supremacy of Christ is meant to function for us. This isn't just a mental exercise. Jesus means to give us a new perspective because he is ruling and reigning supreme over it all. But that's not all. 
Sometimes life feels like a chaotic airport because we're living as if we're supreme. Sometimes we're making decisions and we're acting and doing things that as believers we know that God has not called us to. We're plowing ahead. We're moving things forward. We're assuming control of all things because we're trying to bend situations to our will. And we know, friends, that there's no peace there. Because whenever we act as if we're supreme, there's always a dominant reality that we're not. Only Jesus is. So if he's calling on you to stop, or he's calling on you to wait, see that as his invitation into his peace and his rest. That's the only place where peace and rest are truly found. As we're submitting our lives to him, he's supreme. And he knows what's best for our lives. And so if we're plowing ahead apart from him, there's never going to be peace there. This is an invitation in thinking about the supremacy of Christ to come back into his place of peace and rest as we say, Jesus, once again, I'm having to lay this down. Jesus, once again, I'm not trusting you for this situation. Jesus, once again, I've lost sight with coronavirus and jobs and kids that are sick and pneumonia and all of the stuff of life has so clouded my vision of you. Would you help me just to see you once again as the supreme one? I'm having trouble. I need to enter back in with your supremacy actually functioning, giving me peace, giving me stability, giving me hope as I pass through this life. Jesus is supreme, and he's able to do that. So first we see that Jesus here is supreme in all of creation. All things in this created world must bend to his sovereign authority which he's exercising right now in our lives. Secondly, we see that Jesus is supreme in the church. So Paul moves from a general supremacy to a more particular one in verse 18. It says that Jesus, he, is the head of the body, the church. So in the same way that Jesus was the source and the originator and the creator who spoke the world into existence and sustains it by his word, so too is he the source and creator of all those he's recreated in Christ. That's Jesse's message from last week. We're all new creatures. If you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you're trusting in him for salvation, you've been recreated. And in the same way that Jesus was the originator and source and sustaining power of all of creation, so too is he over the new creation, his people, the recreated ones in Christ. And God specifically installed him as that ruler and creator, Paul says, at his resurrection. So when he was the firstborn from the dead, the one who rose to inherit the Father's kingdom, he sits and rules and reigns on the throne of God at his resurrection. That's when he was installed to be ruler and lord of his people. Now, the pathway to get there could not be starker. It could not be more stark. It could not, the juxtaposition here couldn't be more startling. He, in whom the fullness of God, the fullness of God who was pleased to dwell, suffered on a bloody cross. How does this happen? How does the all-knowing, all-powerful, 
everywhere present, spirit, who is God, condescend in such a way as to fill a body, one human body, in a space and in time, how does that happen? How does Almighty God embody himself in a human being and not for one moment fail to be both God and man? How does that happen? And how, after that huge condescension for God to take the form of a man, how does he willingly and intentionally and purposefully submit himself to be rejected, to be tortured, to be killed? By his creation. How does this happen? How does the indestructible Christ, who has always lived in eternity, get destroyed and his life removed from him by his own creation? How does that happen? I don't know. I do not know. We, our minds, cannot comprehend this. But why it happened, that's crystal clear. Jesus did all of these things so that God could reconcile us to himself. That's what it takes to make us friends of God. God Almighty in Jesus. The reason Jesus is supreme in the church, friends, is because nobody comes to us with this kind of news. Nobody comes to us and says, God has chosen to lay down his weapons against you. God has chosen to offer you terms of peace. God comes to extend his hand and say to you, I want to be friends. That's what God does through Jesus. He reconciles to us through the blood of his cross. By dying and rising again, Jesus deals with our sins and makes us friends of God. That's why he's supreme to all who trust in him. Nobody comes to us with better news than that. Now, what is alarming is that knowing that truth and believing that truth and staking our entire lives on that truth, the church has a very bad tendency to drift away from that truth. And the reason why we know that is because that's one of the main reasons why Paul is writing this letter. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. I say this, Paul writes, all the things, this high Christology, the supremacy of Christ, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. People are slipping into the church with the idea, a well-presented argument, that Christ is insufficient. You need something more. The church is in danger of drifting from the supremacy of Christ. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The church is being lured away, is being captivated by, is being taken prisoner by. Something, thoughts, philosophies, ideologies that are somehow lessening Christ and exalting something above him. So we've got to ask the question, right? What is it for you? What is it that's threatening me? What is it that threatens us as a church to be taken captive, lured away, lessening, dulling the supremacy of Christ in our hearts and in our minds? What is it? What ism threatens you? Materialism. 
which comes to us and says, Christ is insufficient. You need more stuff to truly make you happy. You need more money. You need a bigger house. You need a better car. Ultimately, material things are going to satisfy you in a way Christ never could. Postmodernism. Christ isn't the truth because it's so intolerant to claim superior authority and truth. The Bible is not truly God's word that's intolerant. No one person could be the truth, the way, and the life. Like, there has to be many options. And we're intolerant if we say otherwise. Humanitarianism. What the world needs most is physical, emotional, and psychological relief. Live the gospel and do the gospel, and only if necessary, use words. Environmentalism. We've got to go green. Planet Earth is supreme, and our job is to leave the world a better place for those who are coming behind us. Maybe these philosophies have no functional relevance for any of your lives. Maybe you're not tempted in any way to be going green as if the planet is the end goal. But I guarantee us that some of these philosophies have crept into our lives in an undetected way. And here's how we know. The danger is in the subtlety of these things. Because there's so much good in all of those philosophies. We should take good care of planet Earth. We should enjoy material things that God has created for us. We should love people more, and we shouldn't just tell them spiritual truth. We should give them a piece of bread. We should try to restore emotional and psychological stability. We should do all of those things. But whenever those things become primary, in some way they supplement the superiority of Christ, we've lost our way. And that can happen with a load of things. Education is so important, but education is not supreme. Politics and government are so important, but they're never supreme. No one human being is going to lead us to the promised land. Jesus already has. Business, parenting, marriage, all of these things, they are so incredibly important, but they're never supreme. In fact, we can only do those things well when we're in submission to the one who is supreme. Right? If we're going to do the most good for our planet, we've got to be submitted to the one who made the planet. That, that, that's logic. If we're going to be doing the most good to people and meeting their material and physical needs, we have to be connected to the one who knows how to totally satisfy all of those things, not just now, but for eternity. And Jesus is the only one who can truly set us free from materialistic pressures that we feel because only in him do we understand my fullness comes from knowing him. And so I can enjoy these things he's created without them owning me because I'm already owned by the one who fully completes and satisfies me. If Jesus is supreme, that's the only way we can break free, not to escape these philosophies, but to put them in their rightful categories, to actually live in this world with an ethic that's rooted in the supremacy of Christ. So I'll ask again, where are you most susceptible to be taken captive? Where are you most susceptible to be lured away? Where are you most susceptible to having your senses dulled so that Christ 
Seems important. You know it's important to know who he is, but he's not functioning for you as the supreme authority. He's one of many options. We've all heard at this point of the piracy that takes place off of the shores of Somalia and Nigeria. And modern-day pirates, their MO is pretty straightforward. Approach the vessel with armed forces, board the vessel, then identify the most important passenger, a crewman or whoever's on board, and then bargain for the most lucrative price imaginable. Now, NATO and the UN have figured out that the way to prevent these things is to stop them before they get into the water. So they're trying to detect crime networks and understand what their MO is so that they can stop them before their ships ever cross the shore. What are you proactively doing to discern what is it that's threatening to come aboard my life? Because we would all agree that any captain who charters an ocean-lining vessel in that water and ignores the fact that there's danger out there, that guy is a fool. So is there anything in the charters of your life that you're proactively trying to figure out? What is it that's threatening to come aboard my ship? Who's got a gun to my head? This is no joke. Christ, or Paul says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that no one takes you captive. No one holds you hostage. Do not, and you will be tempted to, be lured away from the supremacy of Christ. What are we proactively doing to discern the areas of our lives that we're being threatened to be captive in? And the way, the best way, just like NATO and the UN, the best defense measures that we can take is not to try to figure those things out. It's to saturate our minds with the supremacy of Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saturating our minds with the supremacy of who Jesus is because he knows that whatever we supremely value, that drives the ethics of our lives. That determines the behavior of how we live. Whatever we supremely value will dictate how we live our lives. That's why he starts in chapter 1 with the supremacy of Christ. Let me ask the band to return. Throughout the course of his letter, this is an amazing book. I love the book of Colossians. And throughout the course of the letter, Paul says that something that was before hidden but now revealed, this is a great mystery, he says. Not mystery like, Ooh, hard to figure out. It's something that God had concealed before, but now he was revealing so that people could clearly understand it. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the supreme Christ, Christian, the supreme ruling and reigning Christ is in you. Don't forget that. And so the question then becomes, if the supreme Christ is ruling in me, if he dwells in me, if he lives in me by the power of his spirit, how does the supreme Christ in me want to exercise his supreme hope to the world all around me? How does he want to restore my life to peace and joy and hope so that I can enter back into reality with that same type of controlling power in my life? Where does the supreme Christ in you want to bring his supreme authority to bear in the world this week. He wants to. He means to. He's going to. Let's ask him now to truly be supreme in us that we might be 
his supreme hope to this world that we live in. Jesus, what a profound privilege. What a high calling that you, Christ, would be in us, the hope of glory. Lord, so many things as we walk out of this building, so many things threaten now to distract us from everything that we were just talking about right here. I pray that you would rule supremely, that you would remind us, that you would bring us into moments of great understanding, that we would allow you to surrender our lives to you so that you could work your will and your purposes out in our lives. Nothing can thwart that. We believe that, Lord, but we can also drift from it. And so, Jesus, you are the hope of glory in us. You are the supreme Christ in us. Rule supremely in us. Bring your supreme hope, your supreme joy, your supreme love in and through us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.